0: Have you heard? Have you heard?
1: Have you heard? Have you heard? Have Have you Have you
2: heard? Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire.
3: And I'm Jack Schneider.
2: And Jack, today we're just going to say the word Harvard over and over again.
3: And then call for people's resignations.
2: That's right. So you go first. Harvard. 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 <laughs> I think we can just end the episode now because... Ev- no, we
3: didn't call for people's resignations. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're demanding that all of the faculty resign right now.
2: Well, this episode was actually inspired by a line from a column written by one of our guests. That would be Will Bunch. He's been on the show before. Super smart. One of my favorites. And he said basically, hey, folks, can we stop? Talking about Harvard for a minute and start talking about Youngstown State. And I'm sure listeners are going to be like, what? Why do we have to talk about Youngstown State? Where is it even? And, you know, the reality is that something like 0.4% of American kids go to these elite institutions, and the vast majority go to state public institutions like Eastern Illinois University, where I attended, or UMass Lowell, where you taught until recently, or UMass Amherst, where you teach now. And the fact that we're so focused on on this tiny handful of schools causes us to miss some things that are actually really dire that are playing out at the schools actually attended by kids right now.
3: Yeah, yeah, and let's not forget the community colleges that serve the largest percentage of students who are enrolled in higher education. And all of this, as we'll talk about in the episode, is intentional. If what you're trying to do is gin up resentment against higher education and against the left in general, then the wrong place to start is community college campuses, and non-selective four-year state colleges and universities. right? Those are places where ordinary Americans are getting an education. Oh, and by the way, students at those schools aren't just studying for you know, trades and other kinds of occupation related outcomes. They're also taking classes in English literature, in modern languages, and in many of the areas that are presently under attack for, you know, being the kind of unserious domain of the privileged. And, Again, as we'll talk about in this episode, it's a lot easier to tell stories about elite institutions that serve a tiny minority of Americans that are catering to the privileged, that you know, do a lot of work to actually keep people out, keep people away from their campuses. And so it's absolutely critical that we think about what higher education actually is, who it actually serves, and what it's actually for.
0: Well,
2: one of the really frustrating things about this story, and I think this is what animated uh, Will Bunch to write that excellent column that I'll be I'll be linking to in our custom reading list for our Patreon supporters, um, is how little attention it's gotten. Right, that the the these campuses that where the majority of American uh, students attend places like you know University of Wisconsin Whitewater Youngstown State West Virginia University University of North Carolina Greensboro they are in the midst of a sort of complicated makeover that has politics at its heart and so we're we've gathered together a cast of thousands to get a kind of on-the-ground report about what's actually happening at these schools what it means and finally you know what we can do about it
3: you and I clearly have a lot to say so maybe I'll just stop here but I am going to request that you bring me back in at some point because I've got a lot of thoughts on this issue
2: now to the main event. First up is Will Bunch. You may recall that we did an episode with Will last year to talk about his fantastic book, After the Ivory Tower Falls. That was episode 142, The Great Education Divide. Definitely check it out if you missed it. Well, Will joins us now to discuss a very particular education divide. That would be the one between the handful of campuses that get an unbelievable amount of media coverage and the sort of state schools where you'll find the Of college students. And when Will looked at these schools, he noticed a disturbing trend.
1: One trend I've been following a lot in the last couple of years, and it's really accelerated, is Republican led states are just getting more and more political with their state university systems. More and more, the boards of trustees of these public universities in Ohio, North Carolina, Florida, Texas, A lot of these key states, the boards are made up with people who are big Republican Party donors, people who maybe they're alums of the school, but other than having attended college, they really don't have any connection to higher education. You know, they haven't worked in academia. They're not professional educators. And we've seen over the last decade just more and more exertion of kind of a political form of control over these universities.
2: One of these schools was Youngstown State. That would be the Ohio Public University in the heart of the Mahoning Valley, what Will describes as a rust belt of dead factories near the Pennsylvania border. It serves more undergrads than Harvard, most of them working and middle-class students. And it's now a campus that in a few weeks will have a controversial new boss.
1: The presidency was vacant, and the new guy they put in was a longtime Republican congressman from Ohio, a guy named Bill Johnson. Very conservative Republican, part of the Tea Party revolution of 2010, very pro-fossil fuel voting record, anti-LGBTQ votes, and most recently, he was one of the 130 or so Republicans on Capitol Hill who voted to reject some of the 2020 election results. He's on record as an election denier basically. And the board of trustees at Youngstown State circumvented the normal search procedures to put this guy in you know, there was no campus visit, there was no public hearing or whatever. They just foisted this guy on the university.
2: And the more Will followed the obsessive and disproportionate news coverage of a handful of elite campuses, the madder he got. Because even if you add in schools like Stanford and Northwestern to the small list of Ivies, you still end up with a grand total of 1% of American college students.
1: There's basically a pyramid of higher education where those schools are kind of at the top of the pyramid. And then as you get down to the bulk of the pyramid, you're talking about places like Youngstown State, one of the many mostly urban public universities that opened up during the 50s, 60s, and 70s. This is the meat and potatoes of the college system in this country. And then the base of the pyramid, of course, is our massive community college system, which gets even less attention. And what happens at these public universities affects millions of young people. And what we're seeing, the governance, the fact who's running these schools is so important because these people are making decisions about whether to emphasize liberal arts or STEM or, or more career oriented. I mean, the push pull of college throughout the history of American higher education has been, what is college for? Is it for the liberal arts to develop your critical thinking skills to become a better person? Or is it just career prep?
2: I mentioned that Will is the author of a fantastic book. Well, much of it is a history of higher education in the U.S., including our endless fights over who gets it and what it's for. And these days, Will has been feeling some serious deja vu.
1: After World War II and the Great Depression, there really was a mindset among a lot of the leaders of higher education that our colleges and universities should be molding better citizens, that this is the major function of the university to develop a philosophy of life. And it worked. It was an idea that was highly successful. And when they molded these better people, they all of a sudden said, well, wait a minute, we're pro-democracy. So what's all this hypocrisy with the Vietnam War? What's all this hypocrisy with having segregation in the American South? And, you know, you saw the age of campus protests and And you had a huge backlash from the establishment. The avatar of that backlash was Ronald Reagan. You know, Ronald Reagan won an upset landslide victory as governor of California in 1966, largely by running against the student protests at Berkeley. He appealed to these white, older, middle-class voters who, like, these colleges are turning our young people against us and against capitalism. And doesn't that sound familiar? Reagan famously said, right after he was elected in 67, he said, I don't believe the taxpayers should be fined financing the intellectual curiosity of young people.
2: In other words, while this trend of hand-selecting ideologues to run red state schools may be new-ish, Fighting about the purpose of college is not new at all. Next up, we're headed to Wisconsin, home to the University of Wisconsin system, attended by 160,000 students. You no doubt know about the flagship school that would be UW Madison, but there are 12 other campuses, including UW La Crosse, UW Whitewater, and UW Green Bay. That's where our next guest can be found. John Shelton is the chair of Democracy and Justice Studies. And the author of The Education Myth, which we featured on this show last year. And John says that for years, there's been an effort led by Republicans and university officials to narrow the scope of what the UW system does. Take, for example, a document put out by the previous UW chancellor, Ray Cross.
4: So, Cross issues this thing called the blueprint. And, you know, the blueprint called for consolidation of programs, having campuses specialize in certain things. And even though Cross never really laid it out, it's clear what programs get cut when that happens, right? It's, It's always the liberal arts. A year after that, this senator from Appleton, a Republican named Roger Roth, put out a report, very creatively named the Roth report, that called for similar things in the context of, hey, we've got fewer resources. Well, why do we have fewer resources? Because you've defunded the UW system. And then, you know, there was this discussion about supposed demographic cliff that was coming. So again, this Republican called for consolidating campuses, regionalizing campuses, reducing program array. And, And one of the things the Roth report talked about was getting rid of majors that only serve to produce students who would then go on to get PhDs in those fields, to cut down on majors that don't supposedly help students get jobs, which we know from all the available data out there that students who graduate in liberal arts are just as likely to get jobs as students who graduate from anything else. But they ignore all that data, right, because this is ideological.
2: This fall, student journalists at UW-Madison broke a big story, highlighting exactly what John just described. They ferreted out an email from the president of the UW system in which he urged campus chancellors to, quote, consider shifting away from liberal arts programs to programs that are more career specific, particularly if the institution serves a large number of low-income students. He also suggested that they, quote, make the painful cuts and adjustments at one time and then move on. John says that to make sense of this story, we have to understand the context and that context can be defined by a single word, austerity.
4: The first thing you have to understand is we've had like a 10 to 15 year regime of austerity. That's the context for all of this. And it started with Democrats, actually. You know, the the budget crisis that happened after 2008. But the sort of all out war on higher education, I think, is something that is deeply connected to the rights playbook in our state. Two hundred and fifty million dollars in 2011, that biennium. Two hundred and fifty million dollars in 2015. That becomes the new baseline for the UW system. It's not like that's a one time cut. So we've had this regime of imposed austerity on us at the same time that tuition has been frozen until very recently. So what it effectively means is that there aren't resources on campuses for all of the things that our students need. And we know that whenever there are times of austerity, what do administrators want to do? Well, they go after the programs that they see as not being the money makers, the ones that students supposedly don't want to take, the ones that supposedly don't get students jobs.
2: This, by the way, is all happening at a time when Wisconsin, like a lot of other states, has an enormous budget surplus, $7.1 billion, the largest in Wisconsin history. In other words, this is a manufactured budget crisis that's now being used to justify placing limits on what a huge chunk of college students in the state can learn.
4: Those low-income students who go to a place like UW-Green Bay, where I work, right, those first-generation students, those students from urban Green Bay or, or rural areas around us, they don't deserve to have the same amount of options as students at Madison or students at Harvard or students at Yale or even students at Lawrence University, which is an elite, you know, liberal arts institution here. A lot of us took umbrage with that because we've seen so many of our students who come into college not even knowing that they want to major in something that they end up majoring in. And they do it because they take a class, they broaden their horizons, and they realize, I'll just use the context of theater, because one of the things on the chopping block at my university right now is theater. Our our administration really wants to eliminate the major and make it into a minor. You know, they, they show up, they take a theater class, and they're like, oh, this is something I'm really interested in. I want to major in this now. And so when you get rid of those options, you're saying to low income and working students that they don't deserve all the same options as everybody else. And it's and that's what that memo said.
2: Okay, let's pause here briefly to review some of the themes that are emerging in this episode. We've got what Will Bunch described as the political hack takeover of red state universities. We've got a context of austerity that often goes way back. And we've got a political and university apparatus that will seemingly use any pretext in order to justify chipping away at the liberal arts. Well, John says there's something else we really need to understand, and that's that virtually all of the right-wing criticisms you're hearing about higher education right now are being made in bad faith. The supposed concern about future employability, the endless harping about indoctrination, and especially the attacks on diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, bad faith, all of them. And John says there's a simple reason for that. The right wing in this country has virtually nothing to offer working people.
4: All they want to do is allow the wealthy to get wealthier. They're not interested in helping working people get good jobs. In fact, what they want to do is empower employers, right? That's what this is about, in tailoring higher education to the needs of employers. And so what the DEI stuff does, because there's a national discourse about it, and it's all in bad faith, and it doesn't actually represent what's happening in our campuses, it allows them to drive that wedge between people in the polity, right? It allows people who don't go to college or don't send their kids to college or have kids who go to college and like don't like what they're talking about when they are having Thanksgiving dinner, it allows them to basically misrepresent what's happening and get them to, you know, turn against higher education, right? For their own political benefit.
2: Okay, Jack, I want to bring you back in because I think in many ways, it's easy to look at what's happening in higher ed right now and just think, oh, look, the culture warriors have just shifted their attacks. You know, now they're going after higher ed. But I think in many ways, it is really different that for one, K-12 is universal in a way that higher education is not. And in some ways, it seems like that has sort of teed things up for the culture warriors and and the conservative warriors to really go after particular colleges.
3: Yeah, that's a good point, Jennifer. And I think that one of the things that we're seeing here is just a lot of experimentation from the right. I don't think there's a lot of design. And the fact that these efforts to use schools as sites for culture war have shifted to colleges and universities is illustrative of the experimental nature of this kind of right-wing assault on the left and the culture of leftism in this country. And they figured out through this kind of experimentation that higher ed is a better canvas for the culture war because, well, Not everybody's in higher education, right? It it isn't the case that everybody's in K twelve schools right now, but fifty million students are, and their families are connected to those schools. And the vast majority of Americans graduated from their local public schools, which means that there is a built-in constituency for those schools, and it means that when radical claims are being made about what's happening inside K twelve education, that people can look to their local schools for evidence of whether or not it's happening. And for the most part, they see, oh no, it seems kind of business as usual. Whereas when they hear stories about what's happening on campus at Harvard, say, or the University of Pennsylvania, both of which just saw their presidents resign. It's a lot easier to believe. It's a lot easier to believe, first of all, because most Americans don't have experience with four-year colleges and universities. And second of all, there's a kind of built-in animus towards elite four-year colleges and universities because they are so rejective and they are absolutely doors to privilege that many view as being not rooted in meritocracy, but in inherited advantage. And there's a legitimate critique to make there, right? There's just enough truth there to make the story work. And the story is that higher ed has been captured by the left, that it is used as a weapon against ordinary Americans, and that what we need to do for the sake of fairness is dismantle higher education now There are all sorts of mistruths there, right? There are all kinds of lies and intentional dissembling. But that's a much easier kind of attack to launch than one on K-12 schools. And again, the right has arrived here through experimentation rather than through a kind of grand design. That's why it's taken several years for this stuff to basically land in higher ed like it recently has.
2: Thank you for that, Jack. Now back to our star-studded cast. We're headed next to West Virginia, to the campus of West Virginia University, to be precise. This fall, WVU made headlines due to the savage nature of its budget cuts. The state's largest university dropped more than 30 majors and cut hundreds of faculty positions, including one-third of education department faculty and the entire world language department. Rose Casey is an assistant professor of English at WVU, a faculty senator, and a member of the West Virginia campus workers. She says that as bad as the numbers sound, the real impact is actually much worse.
0: So at the moment, 305 people at the Morgantown campus have lost their jobs in the space of less than a year, maybe around about nine months. It's hitting very hard across the whole community. Because then, of course, we have not just so many people who are losing their jobs, we have those families needing to move out of town. There are more houses on the market than I've seen in, since I got here in 2016. We have partners of the faculty members and staff who have been laid off who will also need to leave. So the real number is obviously higher than that, 305 we have a number of others that i know of already who have resigned because they don't want to stay and basically everyone i know is on the job market so the real toll is going to be much higher than 305
2: a little more background on WVU. It's the largest university in West Virginia, attended by around 24,000 students. And if you've been following this story, then you know that WVU has a numbers problem. Enrollment has been dropping, even as the school has embarked on an ambitious and expensive expansion. So President Robert Gee took a hard look at the data and the data said, cut, cut, cut. Here he is talking to PBS last year.
1: What was the decision criteria?
4: Which department or how? We based it on facts. And and the facts was, if you have a large number of faculty members teaching few students, that's where you start off. If students are not graduating uh, and getting good jobs, that's one of the things you take a look at.
2: But Rose says that when you actually look at the programs that have been cut, it's hard to suss out the logic.
0: The administration has also cut math graduate study. We also have cuts to chemistry, public health, plant and soil sciences, music. Our incredible jazz program has been shuttered and it's extremely successful. So it's been closed for what seem to be ideological reasons rather than anything to do with its success. Fine arts has been hit. Literary study has been hit. The higher education programs have been hit. I think nine people in the education program have lost their jobs in a state that, you know, really needs to be continuing to train people to go on to work in higher ed or to work in the K through 12 systems. The impact of the cuts, you know, they obviously feel huge for anybody who is working at the university and has lost their jobs or their friends have lost their jobs. But it's huge for the students who attend here. The sense of unease on campus has been very high all semester. Many of them came in to do one program of study and now have to switch gears and do something else because their program is closing down or the professors they want to work with are leaving.
2: The cuts at WVU have been justified in the bloodless language of data and McKinsey reports, but Rose and her colleagues see something much more radical at work, an effort to curtail opportunity for students in one of the poorest states in the country.
0: The university leadership sees those young people as not deserving of being able to think expansively, and acquiring deep knowledge and thinking creatively, but instead needs to go to university to train for immediate job market needs. And those immediate needs will change over time. So if they are trained very specifically for something that West Virginia needs right now, that is limiting their job prospects over the course of a career. It's also really diminishing and seems quite dismissive of young working class people in a poorer state like West Virginia of assuming that they don't get to have the opportunity to learn expansively, think deeply, experiment and find joy in gaining knowledge. But those skills are also, and that process of learning is also valuable in and of itself and something that enables people to have broader opportunities for what their lives might look like.
2: Now, Will and John and Rose are making a compelling case that the attacks on the liberal arts and on these state schools more broadly is about empowering employers at the expense of students, especially low-income students. But that still leaves us with a big and, to my mind, unanswered question. How exactly do the folks engineering these campus transformations envision the future? Rose says that in West Virginia, that vision of the future doesn't quite add up.
0: It seems that there might be a desire to produce more worker bees, not necessarily to produce people or encourage people to have careers that have them engaging at a high level with shaping the workforce or shaping knowledge production, but instead becoming cogs in a machine. We keep hearing market needs, efficiencies and job readiness Forensics has come up as an area of growth. That's the one that comes up repeatedly. President Guy has also talked about neuroscience. But, you know, how are we going to have a world-class neuroscience institute if we can't have graduate math? There are some gaps here that don't quite make sense still. There's
2: one more theme we need to touch on before we leave West Virginia. Now, this is a state that has long been synonymous with extraction, coal mining, logging, fracking, Well, Rose argues that the university itself has become a way of extracting funds from students and taxpayers. And she's not the only one who thinks so. There's been some incredible local coverage of what's happening at WVU, including one recent expose of how this supposedly strapped-for-cash school has been paying to fly legislators to campus.
0: It really seems like WVU has been siphoning money from WVU students and taxpayers, not necessarily in illegal ways, but in ways that really arguably are a misuse of educational funds. It has been choosing to spend its money on consultants. So that's RPK Group and Huron Consulting Group. It's been choosing to support real estate developers, something which has been paid attention to a little bit, It's been choosing to support its administrators rather than its faculty and staff and students, its bondholders, and a private jet company out of Pennsylvania. I do think it's reasonable, and I'm not the only one who thinks this, to say WVU's leadership has been siphoning money that should have been spent on the educational opportunities of students and maintaining a robust university for which you need faculty and staff and library staff, for instance, as well, to be able to keep things going. Instead, it's been prioritizing consultants, real estate developers, administrators, bondholders, and this private jet company.
2: Okay, we've got one last stop on our tour. We're headed to Greensboro, North Carolina, home to UNC Greensboro, or UNCG. It's attended by around 16,000 undergrads and a fair number of grad students. One of them is Audrey Berlowitz. She's a PhD candidate in teacher education and higher education. And full disclosure, Audrey actually provided the inspiration for this episode. She reached out to us with a description of what's going on at her university. And spoiler, it sounds a lot like what we've been hearing from Wisconsin in West Virginia, cut after cut after cut, a constant push to vocationalize programs, even the consulting group leading the database charge to restructure is the same. But Audrey says another big issue at schools like hers is the steady diminishment of faculty voice.
5: So once upon a time, faculty played a much larger role in the administrative branch. But that changed and the U.S. became very split. You have an administrative class, a class of people that came up over the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years. And then on the other side, you have the faculty. So you have this real political divide. The faculty don't have any power anymore anymore.
2: In addition to her research and teaching, Audrey also wears another hat these days. She's become an organizer. She's part of a growing movement on campus to try to take back some of the power that faculty used to have. Take, for example, a recent push by the campus chapter of AAUP, that's the American Association of University Professors, to resist the restructuring of the university.
5: One of the most amazing things that they did also in the College of Arts and Sciences was they penned this resolution where they did an analysis of some of the departments that were seemingly on the chopping block. So not only did the resolution come where they were like, you know, stop this process, no one believes in it. And here's an analysis, and the way that you're using the empirical is completely skewed. You're not taking this and this into consideration. It's all through this very narrow way of reading data, and it's already decided ahead of time, all of that. But then not only that, they opened up this conversation amongst one another. So you have to think about how isolated people are and how competitive people are, everyone's like, oh, am I going to move into this position? Am I going to be able to keep this position? And my CV and my service learning and my publishing and I've got to pump myself. It's always about pumping yourself. And so here's a way where people are starting to care about one another and to practice to make solidarity not a word, but a practice.
2: That resolution then became a petition that now has close to 4,000 signers, including 1,600 students. Administrators then basically said, too bad, so sad. We're going ahead with the academic portfolio review process anyway, which really proves Audrey's point. Part of the reason that we're seeing the kind of assault on these public universities is because faculty have so little real power.
5: If I had my way, I would have a union here. It's not that we have collective bargaining rights and we don't have the right to strike, but the union mentality really puts politics and power at the center. And I think for people who have inhabited the professional class, which faculty have also inhabited, it's very scary to do. But if you did it, you could kind of try to like organize people inside departments and you could do data gathering and you could just organize. You could just organize in a way that ideally, and this is always ideally, which is never the real world, you know, you could organize more for power and you could mount a more of a, an organized resistance. Other than unionizing, my whole thing is I want there to be a, a space for really people storytelling about what their experiences have been, what's been good, what's been bad. What is their visions? What are their dreams for the future? If they could rethink what university is. is. I want them to get in on what the senior admins feel like is their sole realm of control
2: this episode has been all about the shredding and politicizing of state universities, but it's also about organizing, about faculty and students coming together to push back against austerity and limits on what they can teach and learn. That's why Audrey has been so heartened to see the start of what looks like real organizing on her campus.
5: I just was like, wow, this stuff can really happen. And what if we could just do more, you know, and we could just Get more people on board who weren't in despair. Because right now it's just like taking care of yourself, going to another university. It's despair, it's mourning, it's caring for yourself and your family and your own pocketbook, which of course is understandable, but it's that individualism, that that lack of the collective. The collective can only be the mob. No, the collective can be other things. let us That's what the university could be. Let's try to do that with one another.
2: A big thanks to all of our special guests, Audrey Berlowitz, Rose Casey, John Shelton, and Will Bunch. And Jack and I will be right back to weigh in on the kids these days and to reveal the topic of our In the weeds segment for our Patreon supporters. Here's a hint, bold predictions for the education year ahead. That's what you'll get if you accompany us behind the paywall and into the weeds. If you want to join the fun, just go to patreon.com haveyouheardpodcast and become a supporter. Jack, our devoted listeners, no doubt remember that our final episode of 2023 about why the Democrats are having such a hard time responding to the right on this stuff. You'll no doubt remember that we we featured a conservative scholar, one Rick Hess. And I, you know, I have a strict policy on this program that I, you know, I I try to avoid saying hurtful things about people who've appeared on the program. But I have to say that in the early days of of January. I came across one of what I think is the stupidest pieces about the higher ed wars that I've come across. And it was written by him. And he was basically making the argument, hey, you want to know why all the kids are so radical? It's because they're sitting on their keisters. <laughs> but it got it got me thinking, you know, like the 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 kids these days argument is just, it's so old. It, you know, like it, it never seems to run out of gas. And so we're, we're back. It's same as it ever was. And in fact, you know, like, I'm sure we could go back into the annals and we could find somebody making that exact same argument 30 years ago, 50 years ago, hundred years ago.
3: Oh, you're not going far enough back, Jennifer. Right?
2: As long as kids go, have has had keysters, they've been sitting on them.
3: That's, that's exactly right. You go back and read some of the archival materials that Harvard has in the library about how parents were concerned about what was happening on campus and community members in Cambridge concerned about all of the ruckus being caused by Harvard undergraduates. You know, this is like... The 1600s, we're talking about here. This has always been the case in higher education because, well, for a few reasons. One is that college students, we presume, arrive on campus mostly as not yet formed adults and leave as fully formed, fully fledged members of adult society. And so there's a real tension there. What are they? And of course, College students are both, right? They're children, they're grown-ups. They're young people who are still in the process of you know, creating their identities and they're fully formed. You know, They are both uh, minors and uh, holders of the franchise. And this then complicates tension that we see across education in the United States and that is, I think, a little simpler at the K-12 level but again more complex in higher ed and that is is education about socialization or is it about social transformation that's a fight we've been having as long as we have had schools and the older you get the more likely it is that you think no education is about social reproduction right we are trying to bring along the next generation if you identify as a conservative age may not matter there you're probably more likely then to see socialization as the purpose of education. We've got a society, it works. Let's try to bring people along so that they understand our values and how we do things here in this country. Whereas the younger you are, and perhaps the more left you skew, the more likely you are to see ed- education as a process of social transformation. And when we see young people on campus engaging in any sort of activity that their older counterparts may disagree with we see this tension really begin to play out in ways that anger bother confuse people who are disconnected from higher education and who may be inclined to see college students as children, right? These are children. What are they doing? They don't know any better. We ought to tell them what to do. Or as grown-ups, they ought to act like adults. What's going on? Somebody ought to teach them a lesson. If you behaved like this in the community, can you imagine what would happen to you? And then I just want to add one more piece into this, which is that... As over the years, we have begun to fund higher education with our tax dollars, right? We didn't do it 350 years ago, uh, but when we created public higher education and when we began subsidizing all higher education through student loan subsidies, there was yet another tension layered onto that, which is that, you know, these are not kids for whom we are doing this thing called public subsidization of education, right? These are grown-ups, and when we're mad at them, uh, they become grown-ups, right? When we're mad at them, they're grown-ups acting like children, and we then wonder, why are we paying... Uh, with our tax dollars for them to have a good time or to take poetry classes or to sit around, you know, creating protest banners what we ought to do is either take our tax dollars back or force them to study something that is actually going to return some value to us as taxpayers. And so you can see the confluence of these kind of tensions and strains there. And again, they play out in a kind of unique way in higher ed that is different from how they play out in K-12 education.
2: That's really interesting, you know, because I, I've been, you know, I think about this generational split and attitudes this- just really is is just shaping all of our politics in such a pro- profound way and that is that by you know virtually every measure that the the kids are more progressive than the grown-ups right now and and that's coloring things like their response to the war in Gaza and attitudes towards climate change you know they want they want more government intervention and and so but I hadn't really thought about it as this you know also reflecting this this kind of, you know, this battle over what the point of of education is. And so, Jack, I have to commend you. It's early in 2024 and well, you've already produced a keen insight. <laughs>
3: Well, that's one of my resolutions this year, Jennifer, is one insight per episode. So I'm, I'm glad I'm hitting my quota already.
2: Well, fortunately for you, I have cleared some space for you to generate even more insights. And that space is known as the
3: weeds. Oh, no.
2: I thought it would be fun if we kicked off 2024 by making some bold predictions about what we think is going to play out. And by doing it in the comfort, safety, and security of the weeds, we know there's very little price to pay if we're
3: wrong. So, Well, but there is a price to pay if you want to listen to that conversation. And for those of you who are not willing to go that far, for whom that is one bridge too many, uh, I say... Good for you. Welcome to uh, yet another free episode of Have You Heard, or I should say goodbye from another free episode of Have You Heard. Just on your way out the door, please remember to be a subscriber so that the latest episode ends up in your feed, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a review. It helps people find the show. If you're a regular listener, you probably heard me observe in a previous episode that there are other Have You Heards, and one of them, which I think is a Christian inspirational show, comes up first when you search for our show. That's something that we can take action on as, as a democratic community here, folks. Uh, and then finally, uh, don't forget to pre-order the book. I know that usually I'm taking a kind of anti-capitalist view uh, at the end of the show. But, you know, I think if you pre-order, you get some sort of discount. And oh, never mind. I take it all back. Just make uh, tell your library to order it and then uh, get on the early reserve list for that.
2: And Jack, I have to say, you're rocking kind of an Antifa look today.
3: Oh, that's because the heat doesn't work properly in my home, Uh, and so the hood is up today. And you may also notice, Jennifer, that I'm looking like I have been bruised in street battles, Uh, but don't worry. uh, I throw Molotov cocktails with my right rather than my left, and so um, I'll still be uh, as good as usual.
2: Should you wish to support the show in a financial manner, and we really appreciate that, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash podcast and become a supporter for just a few dollars extra. You get things like a custom reading list. You get a complimentary copy of our last book, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, and you get to join us in a place that we call The Weeds. And today we're going to be making our bold predictions about the future. So, Jack, what do you say? Should we head into the weeds now?
3: I guess so.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He sounds very excited. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Jennifer Berkshire.
3: And I'm Jack Schneider.
2: And this is Have You Heard.